0: Welcome to Our Plant Stories. It's a simple idea. Through sharing our stories, we connect people, plants and places. And along the way, we grow our plant knowledge through the passions of other gardeners. So whatever the plant, by the end of the episode, we'll know how to grow it. This week, we have a story about how a mint plant in a London garden is connecting a young woman back to her home and her family.
1: In Ukraine, we... I can say have a generation with gardening. Like, uh, for instance, my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my mother, uh, they have garden. So, um, like Ukrainians really like to care of the soil.
0: And that leads us to a bigger discussion about how people garden, even in the midst of war.
2: Because the reports coming out were sort of Horrific images of bits of aeroplane landing in, in people's gardens, and I thought, well, if Ukrainians are as into their gardens as, as I've been led to believe and there's a city of a million roses, and there's a new there's a new way of looking at conflict
0: here. But before we get to the plants, there's a bit of a preamble or prequel, which is also, I think, a rather lovely story. So meet Pam Orchard. Pam is the CEO of the Connection at St. Martin's a charity which works with people who are rough sleeping to move away from and stay off the streets of London. And her part of this story, which, trust me, will lead back to the plant story, begins when a friend invites her to be part of a flash mob, back in March 2022.
3: So I'm in this WhatsApp group having volunteered to do this. I play the violin And there's just gazillions of messages going through this WhatsApp group about stands and music and timpani and whether or not someone's going to play a particular flute plot or not or whatever. And I'm just expecting to turn up. So I do just turn up having ignored this enormous thousands of messages and it was right at the beginning of March so only a couple of weeks into the war and we played the Ukrainian National Anthem and a couple of other Ukrainian pieces. It was conducted by a Russian composer and conductor and it was just incredibly moving. There were probably a couple of hundred musicians there no one had ever really much met each other before. It was a mixture of professionals and amateurs and we just got on with it, and it was, it, yeah, it was really moving. Um, it also means that I now know the Ukrainian national anthem, which I hadn't expected in my life. So after that, I did actually start engaging with the WhatsApp group because I was really inspired to offer my home to somebody from Ukraine. I just felt like I really wanted to do something about the war and that was something that I could do tangibly. And I asked on the group if any of the people there knew about schemes where musicians could come and stay in places in the UK. And
0: that's how, in June 2022, Anya a 19-year-old student, arrived in London from Kyiv to live with Pam and study in the UK. Pam really likes her garden and comes from a family of gardeners who around March each year start to ask each other what are you growing in the garden this year and start swapping seedlings. But what she didn't know was that her new housemate had also grown up in a family that gardens. I went to meet Pam Orchard and Anya Dushenko. We're in Pam's garden, I got go, do I call it Pam and Anya's garden?
3: I think I think you can do it, yeah, th- Anya. I think you've done enough.
0: <laughs> so tell me
1: about the plant we're looking at here, Anya. Why is this mint important to you? It's like a part of my garden, A part of the garden with my mother. So when I was in Ukraine, we usually have a tea with mint. It's the kind of thing that creates a really uh, friendly atmosphere, I can say in my family. So. We usually plant it uh, near our house, like uh, near the stairs to our house. So my mom usually pick it up and like do tea, and so we have some sort of dialects about things that we need to do in our house, like or some things for tomorrow or for the week. So. Yeah, and now we can have tea with Pam, and like yeah, and discuss some things with her about our future, <laughs> our near future. So yeah, it's kind of I think lovely to have.
0: So mint is about more than just mint. Mint's about a yeah. tea, and yeah. a tea is about a time to talk.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think yeah. So I think it's a plant which keep us together of the family, my family and Pam.
0: So when you sit and make a mint tea, that makes you think of home?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: How old were you when you first started to garden?
1: Mm, Five or seven years old. So uh, we were gardening with my family, with my Grandmother, mother, and maybe great grandmother. My great grandmother has really big garden with lots of plants, different like fruit trees and or vegetables and fruits. So yeah, we have really brilliant time when I was a child. And um, tell me about where
0: you come from, where you grew up.
1: I grew up in Kiev. For the first time when I was a child we were living in Kiev in flat but then moved to the house in the suburb so now we have a garden Actually, with lots of different plants too, with cherries, apples, pineapples, like potatoes, tomatoes. Yeah, so, and our garden uh, is divided like into parts, into sections. Like, uh, for instance, in one section, my mother really liked to grow vegetables and fruits, and so another stop in another section. Do you like better flowers or, or vegetables? I think same. <laughs> <laughs> so flowers, it's like beautiful and vegetable fruits, you can make, you can make something like a really good dish, really good meal for your family. So. I don't think it's kind of um, difference between <laughs> flowers and vegetables for me. So
0: Pam, when you arrived, did you know that you had got a gardener who'd arrived in your house? No, I did not. I did not. But we
3: did spend a lot of time in out, out in the garden. It's partly because it's the really hot summer and we we just spent a lot of time sitting out here. But when I I started doing chores in the garden and Anya very quickly said, oh, can I come and help you and came to join in. When I'm away, I'd say to Anya before I go, I take her around the garden and say, look, this is getting right. There's going to be some of those. There'll be a bit of that just to let you know. And then Anya will pick them when I'm away.
0: I take my children around the garden and I go, right, water this, okay? Please don't let this die. Please don't let this die. And sometimes I come back and I'm like... Did you not think it, it looked a bit dead? I mean, no. <laughs> so I think I needed you, Anya, in my garden. <laughs>
3: yeah, I did, yeah. No, Anya watered the garden in the drought. Uh, actually, uh, when I was away, and made sure that everything stayed alive. So uh, it's very good. She's very trustworthy out here.
0: <laughs> when I heard about Anya, I immediately thought of a book I had read a few months before called War Gardens by Lally Snow, as a war correspondent. Lally felt people were becoming numb to the stories of war, and so wanted to find a way back to people's lives through something counterintuitive, and gardens were the opposite to war. She went to Ukraine in 2014.
2: I was actually on um, something called a hostile environment training course, and I met the Moscow correspondent for The Telegraph, who said, oh, if you're big into gardens you should go to Ukraine. He was just been reporting from Donetsk. Donetsk is a city of a million roses. And I armed and about it. And then flight MA-17 was shot down. And I thought, well, I've got to go because the reports coming out were sort of horrific images of bits of aeroplane landing in people's gardens. And I thought, well, if Ukrainians are as into their gardens, as I've been led to believe, and there's a city of a million roses, there's a new
0: way of looking at conflict here. You often paint the image of a grandparent sharing the garden with a grandchild. That seemed to be that kind of intergenerational knowledge being shared. And Anya, when we talked a little bit in Pam's garden, you talked about that as well. Who taught you to garden?
1: Um, my mother taught me directly. Uh, so it's like a chain. So my great-grandmother passed her knowledge to my grandmother and then my grandmother passed my mother that knowledge and then my mother passed to me. Tell me a little bit about the gardeners you met, Lally, when
0: you were in Ukraine. I headed straight for Donyak, so I was in
2: Kiev and then took a train across country overnight, which was very long, 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 long journey. And I started off with the municipal gardeners because they were the city of a million raises. So the story goes that Donetsk was founded by a Welshman called John Hughes, who was invited by Tsarist Russia to set up this industrial town. And because it was such an industrial place and the landscape was so sort of well, bleak really. They planted a rose for every member of the population. And these rose gardens still exist. So I started to speak to the municipal gardeners and met a babushka gardener um, who was working there. And she described how she was brought up. She was in her 60s on the back of the, I guess, the Cold War. So near knew the threat of war, but never thought that war would come to her. And then over sort of a week or two that I was there, gradually met more and more people who were. On both sides of the conflict, there was an older guy I met who lived in an apartment block, who grew tomatoes, and that was his joy, his delight. And he had a balcony, so that, for all intents and purposes, was like a greenhouse. And he was teaching his granddaughter how to look after the the tomato plants. But he was very much on the side of the the rebels, really. And he, you know, Donetsk is very far from Kiev, so people living as far east. Was that, and he felt no connection to what was going on in Kiev. The point is that he was teaching his granddaughter traditional Ukrainian values through looking after these tomato plants. But conversely, in another part of Donetsk, I met a lovely woman called Katerina, who, when the war broke out, all the shops started to be boarded up and closed. So, having relied on supermarkets, for food, but they started to to close, and people started returning to how we're we going to feed ourselves we'll have to go back to the what we used to do, which was to grow vegetables in our garden so conversely she was and she was much more uh western looking uh, and she was teaching her granddaughter how to look after a garden with Ukrainian values so it's funny that they both perceived what they were doing to be very Ukrainian in value structure, I suppose, but obviously completely politically opposed. But it's it's a lovely thing, the intergenerational mix in uh, in Ukraine that you have between grandparents and, and grandchildren.
0: What about your family in Kyiv, Anya? Have they been able to continue to, to grow vegetables, the flowers, the fruits?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um it's a hobby of my mother. So I can say she can't live without growing something. They plant many trees every year. I
0: wonder if you think that there are any things that these gardeners in war zones have in common.
2: Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think it's that they all turn the other cheek to war. It's as if, if they're saying, OK, you can you can fight, you can let the world fall apart, but we're going to do something positive, which is what we're doing. We're going to survive, because that's what it comes down to. Everybody's very generous with their knowledge, which I think is another thing that is unusual in a place of conflict when people are scared. People are generous with their knowledge. And that's that's the thing about gardeners, though people are normally willing to share and give advice
0: and yeah. Well, plants are something that you share, aren't they? They're just something that people share cuttings or share seeds. It's just one of those things that gardeners do. Yeah,
2: that's true. Yeah.
0: One of the interviews I did recently was with an Italian lady who grew up in America and her grandfather used to say to her and her brothers and sisters, I just don't know how you're gonna cope in a war because you don't know how to grow these fruits, these vegetables. You know, you're so used to popping down to the shops to buy them. By growing his own fruit and veg, he knew that he had food security and he was looking at his grandchildren thinking, you don't have that knowledge. And I just wonder if that's something, Anya, in a way that we're witnessing in Ukraine is there is that kind of sharing of knowledge so that food security is something that is very important, has become very important as well.
1: Yes, of course. Um, yeah, because if you don't care about your plants, you won't be able to pick up fruits or vegetables, you know. So, yeah, for Ukrainians, food uh, security is really important in terms of feeding their families.
0: And do you think very much your generation, the younger generation, will continue that? ethos around the soil and that importance of growing things for yourself.
1: I guess children who live with parents in the suburbs will care more about the soil, but people who live in the center of Ukraine, like in Kiev, if you live in a flat, you don't have gardens near your home.
0: Lally, did you feel when you were writing those pieces? did you feel that you got more cut through when you what reaction did you get when you wrote the pieces almost giving that very um human picture of people's lives did you feel it had more of that cut through as you were talking about how we become numb to it
2: yeah definitely because um and especially when I was doing lots of publicity for the books so doing lots of talks I think with Ukraine, what people found most shocking and frightening was the fact that it's the proximity. Because in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East, they've been in a state of conflict for generations. It's normal, which is terribly sad. Whereas in Ukraine, it's just there. You know, it's a cheap flight with Baltic Air and a train ride away. Culturally, it's more similar. People just want to be left alone to get on, to do their lives. To be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a teacher, go to school, go to university, and it's a sort of the world that sort of implodes on them is very unfair sometimes. And they just, you know, they just want to get on with things. And gardening is a way of of doing that as well. There's a continuity in gardening. It doesn't matter if you're the poorest person or the richest person or in, you know, whatever happens, the world will still turn the seasons will still change roots will dig deeper, things will grow I think that's, that's the continuity is. is a, there's also hope there I suppose as well
0: Just tell me a little bit about your great-grandmother how old is she again? Uh, she's 94 years old My mother is also 94 years old How has your great-grandmother coped in Kiev with what's been happening in the war?
1: Um You know, uh, she was born in 1929, and she was uh, a child of the 1945 War, like the Second World War. She was like 10 years old when the war started. And now, as I heard from my grandmother, who cared of my great-grandmother, she said some people got used to the war and now they don't scare it and i think it's the most horrible thing when the people said that they got used to the war because in the war it, the war is the worst thing that can happen to anyone so no she's okay she is really optimistic person and i don't think that she's continuing. Gardening because you know she's pretty old woman, but every time when we I remember every time when we um, went to the village to our great grandmother, uh, she used to plant anything from strawberries to some uh, apples or um, peaches, peach trees. Yeah, I have so so many, so so many different things to talk about my great-grandmother. Yeah, she's a really really kind and good person.
0: Anya paints a beautiful picture of the women in her family handing down that gardening knowledge, no matter what is going on in the world around them. With each episode, I wanted us all to take away the knowledge to grow the plant in the story. The person who I think is going to encourage us in this was born at the end of another war. Dr Jean Levy holds a national plant collection of mint and her passion is, I think, infectious. And it all started with the most tiny patch of mint.
4: I was born just after the last war and my mother during the war, had met a soldier who whisked her off to London, away from her home in Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. And um, just as often happened in those days, every summer holiday was spent with my mother visiting her mother. So every one of my summer holidays between, I don't know, early 50s to early 60s was spent in Norfolk. And my grandma's house uh, was quite a small house and it had a a little garden. But unfortunately for my grandma, during the war, my granddad had worked for the council and could get free cement. And what he had done, taking advantage of this free cement, he had cemented everything. So the front garden was just a stone square and the back garden was another stone square with one tiny acknowledgement that my grandmother needed a garden. And he had left this four-foot-square patch in in the middle of the concrete. And and that was the garden. And, of course, my grandma wanted to grow something that she could eat after the war, so she grew mint. So when I was told to go and play in the garden, I used to go outside and play in this four-foot-square piece of mint and sit in it and pick it and play with it and smell it. And um, that smell reminds me always it's so evocative of my summer holidays of being happy on the summer holiday being away from home so it it kind of stayed with me over the years and then many years later when I had my first garden um, I I obviously had some mint in it and then I started to look around and I saw other mints and and it grew from there literally grew from there everywhere so, um, yeah, I'm up to around 250 different varieties now. So, uh, and I collect them from everywhere I go. And everybody knows mint, but everybody thinks mint is that one kind of mint, but they just think it's spearmint. Yeah. So I have a lot of opportunity to educate people as far as that's concerned. So anyway, it's evocative of my summer holidays.
0: So tell me, what, what do we know about the origins of mint? the history about mint? Is there anything that you well, can tell us that we should, I think we should history, look at the humble mint?
4: Yeah, the history of mint goes back to the dawn of man, I saw before that. Um, in the UK, mint was, much of it was brought across by the Romans, although I think there were existing species over here anyway. Um, but spearmint itself was brought across by the Romans, they say. I've got a very elderly mint that I found in a dewpond um in an area which was close by a Roman settlement. So I call that Roman mint, and it is a beautiful, pure spearmint, a a spearmint which is so sweet and tender that it's uh, quite clearly different to the things that you buy in Sainsbury's and Marks and Spencer's, which have been highly cultivated and have lost a lot of that sweetness. What's the difference between mint and spearmint? Mint is a general term because mint can be any one of uh, spearmint, ginger mint, peppermint, uh, bowls mint. There are very, very many different varieties and they're all joined together in what they call the mint family. But there's a huge network, a genetic network of different species. Mint interbreeds very, very readily, so that the, the actual classification of mentha is the actual genus of mint. And the actual classification of mentha is almost impossible. Spearmint itself is what everybody believes is mint, and that's mentha spicata. Other people call it garden mint, green mint. It gets called all sorts of things. So when you start to collect a particular plant, you have this conflict between the actual species names, the the proper genetic names, and the names that have been given to plants throughout the years in different parts of the UK. The mint that I'm always looking for is the old mint, the mint from somebody's old garden. When somebody says, do you want some of my mint? And I said, well, where did it come from this? I don't know. It's been there forever. And you think, yeah, that's the mint I want. And almost invariably, it will be a spearmint and it will be a beautifully pure spearmint as well, not quite as pure as the Roman mint. But, uh, yeah.
0: So you're on the lookout for anybody with an elderly I love that phrase, an elderly mint patch that's
4: been there for decades,
0: that's always been there. That would be of interest to you.
4: And I'm constantly looking for uh, non-lavender or pink-coloured mint because, I mean, most people don't realise mint flowers. I've actually got a couple of mints that are so beautiful when they flower that they could be in, like, the standard cottage garden uh, amongst the colliehocks and delphiniums. But I'm constantly looking for the white flowering ones.
0: Okay, I'd like to grow some mint. Would you grow it in a pot or would you put it in your garden?
4: Two things. Firstly, people believe that mint grows everywhere and you, you, know, you can't really control it. It's not true of the mints that you want to grow everywhere. you know, The only mint that grows everywhere is the one that you, you really, you, you're really fed up with. But uh, the other thing about growing things in the garden is that if you want to keep an eye on it, it disappears over the winter. All mint just goes underground and overwinters in, in that dormant state. So I grow everything in pots. I have got a lot in the garden, but that's my back of the garden.
0: Can you give us a few recommendations of your favourites that we might be able to get hold of that would start a collection for for me, or for anybody listening.
4: Okay,
0: maybe nice ones for cooking. Just a, two or three that we could look out for.
4: Spearmint is always the one that is good for putting in potatoes and so on. It's the best one for making mojito. That's one of the major questions I get. You know, what mint do you use in mojito? The other uh, thing is it goes nicely in pims as well, and I would use that one. But the other mint that I tend to use in pims, and particularly in gin and tonic is lime mint and that is there's a mint called eau de cologne mint that many people would have come across that's a lovely mint you can dry that and make potpourri out of it but it's um it's got very many different varieties because it's a, a muddled hybrid and one of the varieties of eau de cologne mint is mentha. Piperita citrata is its proper name. But one of the varieties of that is called lime mint. It's also called orange mint and so on. But eau de cologne mint is very perfumed, but lime mint has got that citrus smell about it. And it's perfect in gin and tonic or anything else, vodka and so on. It, it, uh, it's a wonderful complement to alcohol, really. As far as cooking is concerned, always fall back on the, the spear mint. And peppermint, you can use that, you know, on top of ice cream. It's quite nice to chew, but it's very sharp. People use um, peppermint oil as a, a kind of a, a stimulant, really. So aromatherapy, if you use uh, peppermint in aromatherapy, it's regarded as a stimulant. Spearmint, it smells like chewing gum, basically, and peppermint smells like toothpaste. So, And they're very different smells. So... Um, yeah, and the and the eau de cologne mint tastes like smells like perfume, really. It smells like eau de cologne, uh, and then there are other mints. For instance, the variegated ginger mint and the variegated pineapple mint, and people restaurants use that to decorate. They're kind of beautifully variegated mints, so they're, they're cream and green and. Uh, uh, what else do I use mint for? I used to use it in um, in bunches around the house in the summertime. But uh, a few years back, my friend's daughter got married and I made her bouquet out of mint and herbs. And what was nice is that uh, she then rooted it because, you know, mint. Roots so easily. If you take a piece of mint from underneath somebody's garden or crawl under a fence and take a piece of mint, you can usually be sure of actually rooting it by simply putting it in water and about two weeks later you've got little tiny adventitious roots coming out. So the propagating of it
0: really sounds quite simple. If you find somebody who's got a mint and you would like to grow it in your garden, ask for a cutting obviously, Um, pop it in some water,
4: get it to root, find a pot and you have a new friend and it will go the um that way because that is kind of vegetative propagation basically so what you're doing is you're getting something which is absolutely genetically identical to the thing you picked some of the lavender mints and some of the well the the kind of furry silver mints they do not root very well in water so what you do then is you you know what layering is you kind of lay a piece of the stem along the ground and hold it down with a peg or something like that, and it will then form little adventitious roots into the soil.
0: Anything for the beginner with a mint plant in terms of overwatering, underwatering, sun, shade—anything top tips there?
4: Uh, they say that mint will grow in the shade. It won't grow in full shade particularly well. I mean, it's an easy plant, and. Any of the most common mints are very easy to grow, really. They will grow in the soil, they will grow in a pot, they'll grow on the windowsill. One of the things I have done in the past, because I've obviously got them secured in their pots in the, in the greenhouse and the water trays and so on, I've made a bed of mixed mints, so I've kind of put the peppermint and the spearmint and the tall mints and the short mints and, the, and, and so on all muddled together in the bed and let them all grow up amongst each other and it's no way to keep a national collection because they do get muddled up but it does look splendid people don't realize how splendid mint can look until they actually see it growing like that
0: i really hope that we will come away from this with some more people being inspired by your passion for it and there's a corner of of a nursery sometimes you go to and you see mint and it's with all the other herbs but Having heard this programme, hopefully people will see it in a slightly different way and really go looking for it and thinking what they can put together. They
4: should go, go to that corner in the, um, the plant centres and they should rescue the mint and take it home and grow it properly, because nothing. I've brought so many mints home simply to save them from, you know, they dried out. And it does need a lot of water, and it doesn't dry out well. Mint. It will come back again, because its major life form is underneath the soil in rhizomes. But if you want a mint to look good, you just keep it well watered. Don't overwater. But it's difficult to overwater mint. Don't let it stand in water, unless it's water mint, and then it likes to stand in water. And that, But that smells horrible. Water mint is quite a disgusting smell.
0: So we could have a bit of a mission here for us to go and rescue mint. Yes, that's it. Save mint. Save mint In those it. corners where it's been forgotten and it's been left to dry yeah. out and forgotten. Yeah. The bottom
4: <laughs> corner of the nursery, just go and save it.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Our Plant Stories. If you have, I'd love you to recommend it to other gardeners. I know that I find most of my podcast listening by talking to friends about what they like, so I think word of mouth is the best recommendation of all. But you could also leave a review and follow us on whichever podcasting app you're using, and then you also won't miss future episodes. There's also loads of lovely information about each plant if you go to the website, ourplantstories.com. And do get in touch via the website or by email at sally at ourplantstories.com if there's a plant story you would like to talk to us about. This podcast is produced and presented by me, Sally Flatman.